You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Autocompu is one of the largest consumers of nickel, single consumers of nickel in the world. Obviously, one of the most sophisticated groups when it comes to sort of assessing nickel projects and nickel products specifically. And so their investment here is a major endorsement. The, the price that they're paying well above our recent trading price, really a testament to the fact that they see a lot of potential in this project to deliver responsibly sourced, low carbon uh, nickel units to their ultimate operations. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, speaking today with Martin Turin. He is the president and CEO of one of our sponsors, FPX Nickel Corp. Martin, welcome back onto the show. And it seems like every time I bring you on the show the last six months, I have to start with the word congratulations. If you understand how hard it is to advance a significant project in junior mining in this market, you'll appreciate what is happening right now with FPX Nickel. In the last four major announcements that you've had, you've had an eight-figure investment with a mysterious corporate investor that you can't reveal the name of right now. The government of Canada invested in your project. You also had Jogmec, who was willing to fund global exploration with you for two years. And now you've announced a stainless steel producer has made a strategic $16 million investment in your company at a significant premium. Walk us through these developments and specifically this newest investment. What does this mean for FPX? Yeah, thanks, Bill. So yeah, we, we definitely see each of those things as representing a major sort of technical endorsement and validation of the project. Uh, as you mentioned, a large strategic investor, the Canadian government, JOGMEC, which is a Japanese state agency, so effectively a joint venture with the Japanese government. And now um, here, uh, an announcement of a major strategic investment at a significant premium by Autocompu. They're one of the largest stainless steel companies in the world, really outside of China really a dominant stainless steel player with major footprint of global operations in Europe, United States, and around the world. Um, you know, Autocompu is one of the largest consumers of nickel, single consumers of nickel in the world. Obviously, one of the most sophisticated groups when it comes to sort of assessing nickel projects and nickel products specifically. And so their investment here uh, really, you know, is a major endorsement. The price that they're paying well above our recent trading price really a testament to the fact that they see a lot of potential in this project to deliver um, you know, responsibly sourced, low carbon uh, nickel units to their ultimate operations. And they're just one of the many you know, large strategic players and counterparts that we've been discussing this project with over the last year. And it's great to see them you know, write a pretty big check to get involved here and, and own about 9.9% .9 of us now. So what was the most attractive thing from their vantage point of why they wanted to do this investment in FPX? Yeah, so uh, Autocompo, I think, you know, first and foremost, really prides themselves uh, as a European company on being a very sort of responsible corporate citizen and, um, you know, producing their products, their stainless steel products and alloy products to a very high standard of quality, but also to a very high standard when it comes to the ESG profile. Uh, that speaks to things like the, their labor practices and also more specifically to the carbon footprint of their products and all the inputs that go into making stainless steel. That's how they really look to differentiate themselves from other stainless steel producers, let's say from China or countries like Indonesia, where you know the carbon footprint of emissions, the labor practices are certainly at a, at a significantly, in some ways on a different planet altogether from, from the standards that a company like Autocompu 
keeps itself too. They're looking out at the landscape of sort of future nickel supply. And I think in part realizing that they're going to be competing for nickel units, uh, not just with other stainless steel uh, consumers or producers rather, but uh, with a whole host of new players who are hungry for nickel units. And those are the chemical companies, the battery companies, and the car companies that all need nickel to produce you know, the products for their markets and, and obviously all feeding into the EV battery supply chain. So again, Autocompo is a large, sophisticated group, I think, is seeing that coming, uh, seeing that competition for uh, strong ESG uh, nickel units going forward and acting early and acting quickly and aggressively to try to get their to try to get positioned for some of that future supply. Martin, a lot of uh, junior mining investors will invest in a nickel company or a nickel development company with the expectation that that nickel ultimately will be in high demand for electrical vehicles or batteries. Just from a communications or marketing standpoint, is there any drawback for FPX that you're doing this with a stainless steel company and not a battery company or an EV company? No, I, I don't think so. Um, again, one of the most interesting parts of my job for the last two years has been developing relationships with the major chemical companies and battery companies and car companies. As a fairly across the board statement, you have a group there of industrial players who are relatively, frankly, naive about their raw material supply chain as it relates to producing batteries. They're accustomed to dealing with things on a just-in-time model and where they can really lean on their suppliers and push for very heavy discounts. And so many, and I would say almost all of the optic agreements that you've seen EV battery players sign with junior project developers in, let's say, lithium or nickel over the last few years, they have always, even though the companies don't disclose it as such, typically included some discounts to future pricing. So the EV players swagger into the room. They think they can push around the juniors and say, you will give you an offtake contract, but we want fixed pricing or we want you know significant discounts on future pricing because we're an EV company and and uh, and that's just how we do things with our suppliers. I, I think of, of things as being uh, far different. Uh, you know, Robert Friedland has talked about, you know, this super cycle of commodities that, that we envision here in the next few years, you know, establishing sort of the revenge of the miners. And that means revenge on many fronts, but particularly with respect to pricing power. The arrangement that we have with Autocompo here that provides them a small you know, ability to have rights on future offtake um, is going to be done entirely at market terms with no discount. And so um, really to me, it should serve as a bit of a wake up call to the EV battery players that they really are going to have to play by the mining company's rules going forward if they want to buy our products. So you're in a unique uh, standpoint in that when you talk to these bigger entities, you can actually present the expected cost, which is going to be in the lowest quartile, and you expect to be globally the world's least carbon emitting nickel producer and fundamental to that is the fact that you can access hydropower from british columbia and martin as i was thinking about this and doing a little research not a lot but a little thinking about the capex that if another producer wanted to go to renewables and had to produce produce the electrical generation themselves there's no way that they could even compete compete to your price point could they no, no, they, they, they can't. I mean, you look at some of the Indonesian uh, production, for example, of nickel, which is highly carbon emitting. And, you know, some of those Chinese backed players there are starting to make noises about wanting to move to renewables, um, you know, things like solar or wind, for example, uh, to, to transition away from the coal fired power that is typical in that country. Well, that that's going to entail the investment of, of billions, multiple billions of dollars 
from a capital standpoint in order to get there. Whereas, you know, one of the huge blessings of, of having a project in Canada that's proximal to the hydroelectric grid is that, you know, the incremental capital to connect into that grid is relatively modest in the grand scheme of our overall capital. And it's something that I don't think investors are paying enough attention to uh, when they think about sort of jurisdictional profile. We think about geopolitical risk. We think about you know certainty of title. We think about how long it takes to permit things. Those are all important. But the access to you know very low cost renewable hydropower that the vast majority of Canadian mining projects has, I think, is is not well reflected in the valuations. Meaning that there should be a, uh, an even higher premium than you might otherwise think to be paid for Canadian-based uh, projects with that hydro access. Uh, as it as it really will be able to to underpin the production of low carbon uh, uh, minerals and metal products, and that's going to be a key strategic differentiator for consumers going forward. That we believe consumers uh, are going to prize and be willing to pay more for. As you go down the path of the pre feasibility and the feasibility studies, are you able to kind of re envision how you're going to move this ore, not with diesel trucks, but potentially with electrical vehicles or hydrogen or something? that will also f- lower your carbon emissions. Yeah, so just to put this in context, um, uh, you know, uh, based on our most recent economic study, their PEA in 2020, uh, we estimated carbon emissions would be about two and a half tons of CO2 for every ton of nickel produced. Uh, that compares to some of the production in Indonesia, which is about 70 tons, seven zero tons, so about you know 30x the, the, uh, the amount of carbon emissions of what we will have. Um, of that two and a half tons, about 90% of those emissions were attributable to the assumption of an entirely diesel-fueled mining fleet. And as we now are moving closer towards delivery of our preliminary feasibility study, which we expect in September of this year, we're certainly looking at options to electrify some of that mining fleet. And, and we think there's significant opportunities to drive that two and a half ton figure that I mentioned earlier um, significantly lower and you know retain our position certainly within the bottom decile or the bottom 10 percent of carbon emissions for nickel production globally so we talk about the positioning on the carbon curve as being almost as important now as positioning on the cost curve martin you're in the so-called boring stage of uh mining development here where you're leading into a production decision although that could be a couple of years away but what more do investors need to wait for before they take a look at investing in FPX? Is there anything that an investor should be waiting for at this point? Um, uh, I'm like setting you up not. to give you an answer. <laughs> Go ahead. I'd like to think not, um, but I mean, there's a few things. Let's what would make think, it more exciting, I guess? Let, let me phrase it that way. As we've talked about in the past, FPX is advancing a novel type of nickel deposit, right? The nickel is not in a sulfide mineral. It's not in, a, in laterite, which are the two you know, uh, current forms of nickel production globally. The nickel is hosted in a novel mineral called awarewite, where the nickel is bonded with iron. We're the first company to have ever discovered a deposit like this, and therefore we have to deal with the you know the unique risks and opportunities that are associated with doing something for the first time. And we often say that mining is the race to be second, not the race to be first. Uh, we're in the either fortunate or unfortunate position of being the first here. Um, However, we think that we've done a lot of work, particularly in terms of the metallurgical test work, including pilot plant demonstration, that the uh, flow sheet uh, works very well. Um, and we've put out strong disclosures to that re- in that regard, which have not really moved the share price higher. At the end of the day, um, mining is a highly technical business. And when you're doing something new, I think people 
uh, rightly or wrongly, will will cast their eye with some skepticism at stories like this. That's where the endorsement of uh, large, you know, players uh, I think needs needs to be taken into context. And as we mentioned at the top of this interview, we took on a large, very large public company, corporate strategic investor late last year. That was a massive endorsement. Um, this now this deal with Autocompu is another major technical endorsement of the project. And as we mentioned, you know, funding from the Canadian government and from the Japanese government, both of which obviously would have followed a period of extensive due diligence on part of, of both of those governments. And so, um, you now look at that's just in the last six months, those four pillars of validation or endorsement that have occurred for the project. Um, these are still challenging markets. Um, but we think that those four things taken in combination should really be viewed as sort of checking all the boxes from a technical risk standpoint on the project. And people should feel really comfortable that if it's good enough for those types of entities to m- want to make an investment, it should be good for them as a retail investor, even as an institutional uh, fund manager. Even as you accomplish these milestones and make the far g- fundamental valuation argument for your company, we know that in junior mining, uh, if there's hype built into a certain commodity, that things can you know run up. We see that in lithium. Is lithium stealing any of the luster of nickel as an EV mineral? Um, I don't know that it's stealing the luster. I mean, lithium has had obviously had a parabolic price move. It's pulled back fairly significantly, but the prices are still you know well above the cost curve. They're still well above, I think, the long-term sort of pricing models that most analysts have. But we're we're in a moment right now where lithium is still in something of a bubble, um, and we know that you know the cure for high prices is high prices, and that additional lithium supply will come to market. In fact, I think the way that lithium has performed and the way the lithium stocks have performed over the last couple of years, with you know many of them being at least 10 baggers, if not 50 or 100 baggers, um, really shows the way for what this new demand for, for metals from EVs can potentially do to some of the larger commodities, right? You know, the nickel market is something like eight times the size of the lithium market. Um, and so it's harder to move the needle on nickel from EV demand, just given what a large market it already is. But lithium to me is a bit of a almost canary in the coal mine for this whole concept of the struggle to produce enough critical minerals to feed the EV battery supply chain. Uh, and as you move on to some of the larger, you know, commodities that are, that are key in that nickel would be sort of next up. And then thereafter copper, again, copper being about eight to nine times the size of the nickel market. So that's the sequence of events that I see in terms of price performance and, um, um, you know, the experience that pe- positive experience that people have had in lithium, I think sets a good tone for what, what people could potentially expect in nickel in, in the months and years to come. So as you continue to advance on the technical side for the Baptiste deposit, what do we have going on the exploration side? You have the van discovery and now you have this two-year partnership with uh, Jogmec. Uh, what should investors expect from you on the exploration side of the business? Yeah, as you mentioned, really the main focus the company has been on, you know, um, all the work surrounding the preliminary feasibility study for Baptiste, which is, excuse me, going to come out in the third quarter of this year. Uh, alongside that, you know, we, in 2021 and 2022, we made first a major discovery at Van through drilling and then and then significant step out of, of that uh, deposit in the making. We don't have plans to do additional drilling at Van this year, still looking to sort of preserve our capital. And frankly, we think the demonstration of the robustness of Baptiste in a preliminary feasibility study 
And with the ongoing endorsement of investors that we just mentioned, we'll continue to kind of, let's say, show to the market the value of finding more of this type of mineralization. Uh, I think we need those that kind of endorsement and validation in place before wanting to spend more money at Van. Uh, with respect to the JogMec Alliance, this is a great sort of exploration alliance that we've struck with them. They're going to be funding on a 100% basis uh, a worldwide search for new Awarawite nickel deposits, both in Canada and, frankly, anywhere around the world. We are managing that program on behalf of JogMec. Um, and, you know, it's important to note that JogMec's investment here was really in looking on behalf of the Japanese government and on behalf of Japanese industry, uh, looking for new sources of nickel that are suitable for the EV battery supply chain. That is the entire focus of that alliance from JogMec's standpoint. Um, and so that's a huge endorsement, not just of Awarawite and the technical and economic potential of it, but also of its ultimate suitability for batteries. So uh, we will in the coming weeks be making an announcement regarding the appointment of a new vice president who will be managing that program for, for us, um, someone coming to us from a significantly larger company. And uh, very excited to be able to share that news with the market in the weeks to come and to really get that program underway and really get the ground running quickly to be uh, uh, beginning the hunt for elephants, uh, nickel elephants uh, of this same type of mineralization. You mentioned you're not always rewarded for being the first mover previously in this conversation, but at least Jogmec recognized you as the first mover with the Awareite mineralization development, right? So that's why they sought you out here. Absolutely. We do have a first mover advantage um, in, in this type of deposit. You know, in some ways, you know, we think there's some broad analogies between Awarawite nickel and uh, where it sits right now in terms of its public acceptance to where, you know, the phenomenon of sort of porphyry copper deposits were in the middle of the of the 20th century. Uh, up to that point, copper had not been mined uh, to any great extent from porphyries. Uh, they were seen as being, you know, too low grade and not 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 being economic, frankly. Uh, but as you had certain uh, technologies be able to unlock the economies of scale of large mining operations in large open pits with with low strip ratios. You know the porphyries starting in the kind of the 60s and 70s really started to become the new dominant form of copper production. And um, uh, I kind of feel like we're 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 doing the same type of thing, trying to demonstrate that a new deposit type in nickel has the ability to be ultimately very disruptive to nickel supply globally. And, um, you know, JogMec certainly sees that potential and thus their investment. Martin, you're a CFA, so you're good with numbers. You're very thrifty, but I think this is the biggest treasury that you've ever had since your uh, time at the helm of FPX, isn't it? Yeah, I'm actually a CPA, not a CFA. So oh, sorry about uh, that. Know, <laughs> sh shout out to the accountants out there. Um, uh, yeah, so we'll have about $33, 34000000 million in the bank uh, on conclusion of, of this investment. Um, it's important to note that uh, our existing 9.9% uh, strategic investor will be diluted by this uh, investment, and then it will be their decision. Uh, they have a right to maintain their 9.9%. So uh, if they uh, choose to exercise their right, they would go back up to 9.9 and, and, and invest uh, uh, a little bit more money in us to, to even boost that treasury further. So yeah, with with well over thirty million dollars, we're you know fully funded now, well out into twenty twenty five, and uh, uh, that is really on the assumption of, a, of an extremely aggressive uh, program to continue to advance the project, uh, both through the, the completion, obviously, of a preliminary feasibility study, 
but then getting into the feasibility study and uh, through all the environmental and baseline study activities that would then potentially put us in a position to enter the impact assessment or permitting process in 2024. Um, you know, advancing on the project to this scale certainly is is quite costly. Um, uh, and and so having that that big treasury that pushes us out to to 2025 is puts us in a real position of strength. The other thing I would say, Bill, is like, you know, our last two equity investments here have been from large strategic investors. We continue to also pursue opportunities for additional government funding from both the Canadian government and the US federal government through their Department of Defense programs. Um, and I envision here that we could well be in a position where we never have to do a traditional capital raise again. We don't have to deal with Bay Street and House Street discounts to market warrants, things like that, or, you know, stock going into uh, shaky hands. Um, you know, the investment without a company here is a testament to that. Yes, we've given them a right of first offer on future offtake on a very small percentage of overall nickel production from Baptiste. But in order to maintain that right, they have to maintain their share position. So we expect that they will be a very sticky pair, pair of hands there. And um, unlike a lot of the, the private placements that you see where people you know, buy and then clip the warrant and sell and get out of the stock or hedge funds that get in and sort of do the price manipulation thing, we don't think we'll have to play those games ever again. So if Main Street buys your shares, they're not at a disadvantage to House Street or Bay Street. Another way of saying what you're saying here. And indeed, they're at a they're at a distinct advantage to buy in the market, Bill. You know, when we did the strategic investment in the fourth quarter of last year, it was done at, I believe, a twenty seven percent premium to our last closed closed price uh, quoted price before the announcement. So twenty seven percent premium, and this investment is being done at a circa forty percent four zero percent premium. So you 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 know, people who are buying the stock ahead of the financing are buying at significantly lower price than where the financing is done. And when's the last time you saw that in junior mining? Yep. Well, the company is FPX Nickel. Website is fpxnickel.com. Ticker symbol in Toronto, FPX. And on the OTC, F-P-O-C-F. Martin, thank you for this update and congratulations again on this large investment. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.